The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing a big finish audio story featuring the ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston, called Below There. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stiga. Hey, Father Corey. Hello there. <laughs> Hello there, below there. Get your very own Secrets of no, Doctor the, Who t-shirt. The, the, the line is, hello, below there. <laughs> That's right. Oh. <laughs> so, I was just playing, sure. I'm just going to rhyme. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so, folks, be sure to get your very own Secrets of Doctor Who t-shirt or other merch by visiting sqpn.com slash merch. You can see my Secrets of Star Trek one Ooh. that I'm wearing, if you're watching the video, uh, that uh, we have a similar one for the Secrets of Doctor Who, and there are lots of fun. So you should check them out at sqpn.com slash merch. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. And that you can find wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash secrets. And stick around to the end. We have more of your listener feedback that we'd like to share with you. So this time we are talking about, as I said, below there. Uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? This week, the Ninth Doctor meets Vix, just Vix. Vix Just Vix, otherwise known as Vix Leeson, works for a transport relay station in a remote sector of space. Her job is really boring, routine, and lonely, and not everything on the station even functions properly. She works for LeapCore, a soulless corporate transmat company that boasts of having a 100% safety record. But Vix is having psychic visions of a coming transmat disaster that will harm billions of travelers. And Vix has proof that the system isn't safe for humans because her co-worker, Tom Francis, was mentally crippled by a transmat accident. The doctor tells Vix that she must act, that she must reveal what she knows about the system's safety. The mentally tortured Tom is trying to use the leap beam to get off the station, and the doctor lets him do so and disperses his atoms to end his suffering. Afterwards, the doctor and Vix establish a communications network among the other workers on other transport nodes, and to avert the forthcoming disaster, Vix reveals what she knows about the system's safety. The doctor then leaves Vix in charge of organizing a worker's rebellion to shut down the Leap Corps system until it can be proved safe for humans. The end. Okay, so this, uh, I, I wanted to start by just mentioning that this is part of a series of a handful of, I think, three stories mm -hmm. featuring the Ninth Doctor and Christopher Eccleston, who's back. Yeah. We mentioned that before. This this and, is the second batch of three. Yes. Yes. Yep. And uh, the the theme for this one is the Doctor crosses paths with many travelers, some at the start of their journey, some well on their way. Sometimes the journey is more interesting and more dangerous than the destination. So I think that's kind of a, a theme that we're going to see in these and in this one is, Journeys, I think. Yeah. The name of the set is Traveling in Hope. Right, right. So let's start with our overall impression of this story. Father Corey, what'd you think of this one? I think it was I think it was okay. Um of course it was another, you know, big megacorp is more concerned about profits than 
than, you know, human safety story, which is fine. But it was interesting, the interaction between the doctor and Vix and, you know, her her coming to trust him and uh, her being out on her own and, and had, you know, started out with just her routine, her daily routine. And we thought she was just alone. Turned out she wasn't. Um, so it was it was it was OK. It wasn't the greatest, you know, person sitting on a space station on their own story I've ever heard, but it was OK. How about you, Jimmy? I enjoyed it. Um, it's not the greatest. I would agree with Father Corey. It's not the greatest big finish I've heard. I would put things like the chimes at midnight or mm-hmm. um, live 34 at a 10 on a scale of one to 10 Doctor Who stories. I would put this around, you know, maybe a seven, uh, which mm-hmm. was still solidly enjoyable for me. I like the fact it's not a typical story. Of Doctor Who. Um, the typical story starts with the Doctor and any companions arriving in a location and encountering, you know, something that has to be solved. And this has a bit of a different structure. Um, we start not with the Doctor, but with Vix. And we have an extended sequence with barely any of the Doctor in it as we get to know about Vix and her routine and her interactions with the station. At one point fairly early in the story, they do an effective montage, which you don't have a lot in audio formats. Mm -hmm. You know, in a montage, you typically shift scenes visually, and that tells you time is passing. Here, they can't do that because we're not seeing anything. But they do use music cues to shift to signal shifts in time and we get an effective montage of her just going through her routine and the same things are happening to her regularly and she's really struggling to keep up and we're dealing with her frustrations and occasionally she gets a a phone call from the doctor who is she which she's really perplexed by because she's so remote he shouldn't be able to transmit to her and he just says well i'm really clever with that and he keeps trying to build a relationship with her And eventually he suggests, why don't I just drop by? And she's like, how can you possibly do that? Mm -hmm. And 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 he says, well, I'm I'm really clever that way. And he uses the TARDIS to get to her. And, you know, this is, I don't know, a third of the way through the story or something. Mm -hmm. And then we have this middle act of the the doctor and Vix together starting to come to grips with the situation. And the doctor makes it clear he he believes she's been lying to him um Mm -hmm. and he repeatedly tells her to tell him the truth and when she finally does we get the third act where we meet her co-worker that she's been covering for because tom has been mentally damaged he was uh trying to use the transmat system to get home to see his sick daughter before she died or might die. And he wasn't authorized to do that because of the way this culture works. Ordinary people can't afford interstellar transmat jumps. This is something for the rich. And and he wasn't authorized to do this, but she w- he was going to try to get back before his daughter's death. And he ended up repeatedly bouncing between different transmat stations in a way that even though it was only a moment for Vix, it could have been millions of years for Tom. So he saw a and was trapped alone for a significant slice of eternity and came back mentally crippled. And um, and so we, we learn about that. We learn about Vix has been taking psychic suppressants because she's been having these visions of a coming transmat disaster. And all of it comes together in the third act and 
Tom is released from his suffering, which we'll need to talk about. And the doctor enables Vix to lead a workers rebellion to shut down the system until it can be made safe. But I thought it was an effective, entertaining episode. I'd give it a seven, maybe even an eight. I, I thought it was quite enjoyable. I, I did. I, I would. I'm just thinking about about my assessment of it, and I, I, I liked it. There were things I really did like about it. Um, I thought it was. It had a bit of you know space gothic horror, like that. That you know, on a space station, you know, sort of alien, sort of th- that that creepy vibe. Space, you know, space station and deep space vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something out there. It was that that early. You know, uh, the, her her psychic impressions was like something was stalking her. So there was that was effectively creepy. I did get uh, also speaking of vibes, vibes of maybe because we just talked about it. Sleep no more. The episode mm-hmm. with the uh, the the thing that went put you to sleep. I forget the Orpheus. The eye, the eye, the eye, eye boogers. Yeah, right, right. The yeah. eye booger monsters, but Mor- you know, and it's, Mor- it's was- Morpheus. Orpheus was the guy who went to hell and back. Morpheus is the god of yep. sleep. Right, right. Let's <laughs> get those mixed up. Uh, but there was, the, you know, sort of the you get you start off with the first person video of the guy on the station, and so I had a little bit, and then the doctor shows up later, and mm-hmm. so there was a, a little bit of that feel to this one, uh, but. I thought it was very Eccleston. It was very nice doctor. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the personality came across. So <clears throat> both in the writing and obviously in the acting, um, I feel like Christopher Eccleston has jumped right back, you know, nearly two decades later to the night doctor and just really hit the ground running. I mean, it's really great. Uh, I'd love to see him in live action as the night. He, he also has a kind of angry young man fight the machine vibe. Mm-hmm. Which the way other doctors don't. I mean, third doctor didn't have that. And the fourth doctor didn't really have that. But Eccleston very much has this angry young man fight the power vibe. Mm-hmm. And this story fit him. It was it was nice in that respect. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, the title below there is actually bestowed on it by the doctor, uh, in, mm-hmm. in a sense, by... He, you know, he says, uh, hello, blow there. And he's quoting from a Charles Dickens story. He doesn't come out and say that, but I looked it up. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's called The Signal Man. And, uh, 1866. Wiki- yeah, the Wikipedia summary is uh, a railway signal man of the title tells the narrator of an apparition that's been haunting him. Each spectral appearance precedes a tragic event on the railway on which the signalman works. And so that's a it, Vix is kind of like a signalman on a railway performing a similar function on the transmat network, just making sure things are going where they're supposed to be going and not Mm -hmm. really doing anything else and stuck out in the middle of nowhere as a, you know, really like in the U S it would be out in the desert West or something. You know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, in here it's deep space. Yeah. This is very clearly based on the signal man by Charles Dickens. Um, It, because you have, the similar templates for the story, you know, an employee who runs a transportation system is having visions of coming disasters. And and that's exactly what we have here. And the doctor uses the line at one point, hello, below there, which um, and Vic says what? And he says it's from a ghost story, a really old one, which it would have been whenever Vix is living because the story is from 1866. Right. And um there's also a mention of this story in the episode of the first season of the revived Doctor Who, 
where Christopher Eccleston meets Charles Dickens. Right. Um, yeah. and right at the beginning. He, <laughs> right at the beginning. He, he tells him I'm a fan, and Charles Dickens doesn't know what that word means. <laughs> and so he has, to, he has to elaborate where it originally come from. Oh, I'm a fanatic for your work. Um, he says, I particularly liked the story with the ghost. And Charles Dickens thinks he means a Christmas carol. Um, because right. that's his most famous ghost story. But the doctor is like, no, 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 the other one, meaning the signal man. Yeah. Right. Wow. That's a deep cut back. I didn't remember that. Yeah. That's so they yeah, I remember. Even, even established the doctor knew this story uh, in the Charles Dickens episode. It's, this is probably, this is clearly a callback to that. Um, speaking of callbacks or Vic's, Vic's last name is Leeson, L-E-E-S-O-N, mm-hmm. which is... Coincidentally or not, I can pretty much guarantee the same last name as John Leeson, the longtime voice of Canine. Yep. So her last name uh, is very likely a call out to him. Nice. That's that's a nice little uh, a little Easter egg there. I also uh, so, like how speak, speaking of her name, I like how the doctor when they're in their phone call stage is like, so what's your name? And she says, Vix, just Vix. And thereafter, the doctor refers to her as Vix, just Vix. <laughs> yes, like, like Bond, James Bond. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, yeah, she's she's having these nightmares, these terror, and it's we're not quite sure in the beginning. Like, are, is is this actually happening to her? Um, is she remembering a thing? Is she seeing a thing in the future? And that's the that's the big question throughout most of the uh, the story, as you well, mentioned, Jimmy. And, and they make it sound like it, it's at first that it's it's a problem with the comm system that she's picking up something through the comm system. That's that's because it's staticky and it kind of fades in and out like a, a bad, bad uh, radio signal does. And so they kind of play it off on that. And then it's when it's happening, the computer is silent. She's you know calling the computer and she does the computer doesn't respond. And so eventually it becomes clear that, no, this is actually something that's within her head mm-hmm. that she's, she's not hearing it from outside, but it's that, that's that psychic, impulse that she's having and the doctor quickly picks up on the fact that she's terrified uh mm-hmm. and there's no explanation of why the doctor starts calling her you know what what is it why is the doctor contacting this remote station suddenly like this because often they, it's the tardis takes him somewhere because that the tardis knows he needs to be there but no there's no real explanation of why the doctor is at all involved well, this could be the same thing. I mean, we don't because we start with Vix, we don't see what happens before the story from the doctor's perspective. So we don't mm-hmm. know why he's in contact with her. Hypothetically, I mean, he could have detected something that led him to realize there's a problem here he needs to deal with. But that seems a little implausible because he number one, he doesn't say that. And they could have dealt with that in a line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but also he doesn't know who he's dealing with. He doesn't know that this is a leap core uh, system or even that he doesn't appear to know that he's even talking to a, to a transmat worker. Um, When he starts talking to her, she says, well, I work for the biggest transmat, you know, service in the galaxy. And he's, he says, TMAT. And she says, granddad, TMAT was bought out (laughs) 50 years ago by leap core. And um, and by the way, Transmat and TMAT go all the way back to the second doctor's time. Um, so right. they've been part of this for a long time. Um, so hypothetically, you could I mean, there could be any reason why he contacted her and he could be lying about how much he knows. But um, 
because rule one, the doctor lies. But it also could be the TARDIS again. He may have gotten bored and decided to switch on the <laughs> radio communication system to talk to somebody, like he said. Mm-hmm. And the TARDIS hooked hooked him up with her because she had a need for this. So it it could be that. It would be interesting to know. But because of the unusual story structure, we don't really get an answer on that. He's, he's kind of like a uh, ham shortwave radio operator. Yeah. You know, just talking to yeah. whoever's out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, I like the way I think the story has a very I like the fact that, you know, the TARDIS doesn't show up until until, uh, you know, a third of the way through the doctor doesn't physically appear until well into the story. And they you know, we hear the TARDIS noise and she's she just Vix describes it as a blue crate, you know, because she's used to shipping cargo. And she's so far in the future, she doesn't know what a police box is. So she describes it as a blue crate. And he's like, hey, easy there. She's very sensitive. Um, but not not two sentences later, calls it a crate. Yeah, he, he does. <laughs> and and then later she refers to it as your ship. And she says, oh, it's a ship now. <laughs> when, they, when they're in danger and she's wanting to leave. Yep. Um, but uh, I also like he uses the sonic screwdriver without any explanation. We just hear it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and later she's saying, you can't get into this section. It's all he uses it the first time with no explanation. We just hear the noise and we know what's going on as the audience. But then later they're getting into a, a restricted part of the of the transport node. And she says, but this is all locked. And he says, well, good thing I brought a key. And we hear the sonic noise again. Mm-hmm. Right. I like I like that. I thought there's a very effective build towards the climax. It starts kind of slow, but then it gets more and more interesting and more tense right. as we get towards the climax. I like how the doctor, when he's confronting her with the fact that she's lying, you know, he says clearly, you know, you're you're the only person here. But um, but that makes no sense because this kind of job you'd need two people for. They should always have two people on a station like this. This is clearly not one person running a whole station every hour of every day indefinitely. This is clearly designed for two people. It's set up for a swing shift. And she says, oh, how do you know that? And she's just made him a cup of tea. And mm-hmm. he says, two mugs. it's like yeah if this were for one person there might only be just one mug that's right right well Uh, one thing i like just how they one thing i like just how they played tom how he's you know he's she's she's portraying him as he's this monster now and he's dangerous and she he's gonna you know hurt you if you get close to him and it turns out that no he's not he his mind's been scrambled he's seen way more than he should have because it turns out that he was he was bouncing between the nodes of this beam and he his was awake for it. So he saw everything. And, you know, there's and there's they, they did this whole thing of where he, you know, he re, he saw the relativistic speeds and all that stuff, but he experienced it in real time. So for him, while it might have been just a few minutes, it turned it was like, you know, millions of years or something like that. And that's that's what kind of scrambled his brain. But I like the way they played that, though, because he was this always oh, this monster. And you think of classic who where you've got the, the human being who gets taken over by an alien or something like that and becomes this horrible monster that needs to be killed. And instead, it, it just it turns out that he's trying to escape and he's trying to end him end his life, basically. Or at least right. he's trying to escape anyway. It's not clear yeah. that he's suicidal. 
Um, his, his, what happened to him is kind of, it reminds me of Zoroastrian hell or Mm. more properly Zoroastrian purgatory, uh, because Zoroastrians don't really have hell. But Mm -hmm. a while back I read, um, a Zoroastrian text called the art of Iraf, which is about a dude named art of Iraf. And he's commissioned by Zoroastrian leaders to explore the afterlife and come back and report on it. So they give him this this drug and do this ritual that makes him sort of die. And he spends a bunch of time exploring the Zoroastrian afterlife. And a lot of what he sees are punishments of, that people experience for different sins. And he also sees heaven, Zoroastrian heaven, but he also sees this hellish purgatorial environment. And um, he sees like people trying to cross a river and as they do so, they are impeded and they aren't experiencing this communally. Every person thinks he's alone. And one day in their subjective experience is equivalent to a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they're they going to spend like 10,000 years crossing this river. And in reality, it's only going to be a few days, but they're experiencing it as a vastly longer period of time. And even after just one day, a person is like, I have spent 10,000 years alone. Mm-hmm. And that's even more significant in, in other cultures than it would be for us, because Americans are and Westerners in general are used to privacy and alone time. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of cultures, they ain't. I was I was reading a, a, an account of like a Western missionary who was in the, he was in Indonesia or something and the wife would want to get alone time. And so she would like go into the back bedroom to write letters to friends back home so she could be alone for a while. But the household staff didn't get this privacy thing. You know, they're all natives. And so they would follow her into the back bedroom so that she wouldn't have to bear the burden of being alone. (laughs) <laughs> and, and hell. <laughs> yeah and, yeah and, and and so so in some cultures i'm alone it means something vastly different than yeah. it would mean to us mm. yeah and that's the kind of the interesting thing is, is while tom was alone in the transmat beam for its sub, a subjective million years or whatever uh vix was also alone on the mm-hmm. station sort of uh mm-hmm. Even to the point where she was sending reports back to Earth or headquarters, whatever, and but was not receiving communications. She was cut off and she's out in this Sector 17, which is called the Oubliette. She says at one point that they're out of that they're out of reception range so she can basically transmit. But doesn't expect to get any replies and exactly how that works is not clear. Um, but, but they do mention it, that she only, she expects to only be able to transmit, not to get incoming messages. And that doesn't, that immediately to me doesn't make sense because they've got this transmat beam that they're able to beam to the station. They can beam even a, you know, a pre-recorded message, right? You know, there could be a carrier wave on that transmat beam, but. Right. That is weird. Uh, I like that uh, that they call this sector the Oubliette, uh, which is a reference. It's French Oubliette, it, you know, means forgotten. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it also yeah refers to in the Middle Ages the Oubliette was the dungeon essentially, and mm-hmm. that's kind of where she is. She's forgotten in this you know dungeon like area. Um, so the uh, 
the doctor shows up just as the, the leap beam goes offline. And so that at that point, I was thinking that's why he's he's involved here is because he's come to save her. Although apparently he's come to save everybody in the mm-hmm. loop system because, uh, uh, you know, it, the whole thing is about to go up as we find out. Yep. Um, uh, that's another incidentally his insistence on you've got to tell me the truth. You got to stop lying to me. Tell me what you know is another sign. The doctor doesn't really know why he's here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. He's just something has brought him here and he's not sure. Uh, there's a scene where they they go up to this observation platform where you mm-hmm. can look out into the nothingness. And uh, he, he notes, although they don't really follow up on this, he notes that the whole station is set up for efficiency and profit except for this viewing platform at the top. And I was curious what that was about. So did, was this a an indulgence by the Leap Corps, which seems so heartless and cruel otherwise? That's how it appears. They don't mm-hmm. establish any later significance. I mean, non-diegetically, they need to establish that there is nothing around them in space mm-hmm. um, because uh, – Vix has been having visions of people floating around them in space, and we need the doctor to see that they're not there. Right. And so this is an easy way to do it. In terms of a diegetic reason, they don't really explain it. Um, but I thought that was a very effective scene. They play music because the doctor mm-hmm. is talking about how amazing it is to look out of the viewing port. And they they play this music that you know, gives you a sense of kind of grandeur. And it's uh, it was another data point that struck me that I noted of how the music in this one, the soundtrack, carries a bunch of the emotional weight, like in the uh, like in the uh, montage of Vix's daily activities. You know, that's substantially helped along by the music. And so even though we don't normally think a lot about the musical, the music track, in these, you know, Big Finish does compose new music for these. Mm-hmm. And in this episode in particular, the 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 soundtrack with the music carries a bunch of the emotional weight. Yeah. Yep. And um, that actually reminds me, like I wanted to, you know, you mentioned like the montage. I did like the sense of a rhythm of her day, like the mm-hmm. cycles of like giving us a, a sense of time that she's on here and what she's doing and that, that, that really it's hard to convey otherwise without, you know, without having this, her going through these routines. And so it kind of establishes the place much more so than just telling us that she's on a place by herself and, and that sort of thing. So I I did like that they did that. Um, All right. So let's get to the uh, elephant in the room where the doctor kills somebody. He Um, kills somebody. This is, this is murder. Uh, yeah. Vix is or Tom is trying to leap off the station and the doctor lets him and then adjusts the leap beam so that it will disperse Tom's atoms and end his suffering. And um, OK, so that's euthanasia, but euthanasia is murder. So the doctor just mm-hmm. murdered somebody here yep. and uh, murder bad. <laughs> this yeah, wasn't just, a, this wasn't a self-defense yeah. killing. Yeah. It, it, um, it, excuse the pun, but could this be called physician assisted suicide? Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I you're use that pun because of, on that excuse, you're asking a lot. Yeah. I, <laughs> oh, I use that. I use that pun because uh, uh, I use it as a pun because I, I that is, you know, when people talk about physician assisted suicide, they're talking about euthanasia, mm-hmm. you know, and it is very much 
you know, morally, uh, in, morally wrong. You know, it, it is immoral to, to do, you know, there's one thing to, you know, we can go into the whole you know, issue of, you know, um, medical means to prolong life and things like that. But to just say, no, we're going to cut off life is always like in this means or by withholding necessary treatments and so on is always morally wrong. Yeah. Now, presumably the doctor knows that there's no fix. He's there's no way he can fix Tom's mind after what it's been through. So it will be a life of torture for Tom. Mm -hmm. And and I would because that'll at least take some of the edge off of the fact the doctor just murdered this guy. But it's still a murder. Mm -hmm. And and I'm I, I suspect that the authors don't want us to view it that negatively, but that's what it is. And it was a choice to have the doctor kill this guy. I think they were intending to show the dark side of the doctor here a little bit, that he's mm -hmm. willing to do this. Um, I don't think they want us to view it as full-blown murder, but I think they did want to show us the doctor is willing to kill yeah. in a situation like this. Um, because well, they had a choice. They could have had... Uh, Tom is crazy and he's trying to leap off the station and he adjusts the beam in a way that's clearly not going to connect with anywhere. Mm -hmm. And Vic says, wait, stop. And the doctor just says, let it happen. It's the only thing that will end his suffering. Yeah. And, and then it wouldn't have been deliberate killing on the doctor's part. But the way they chose to write it, it was deliberate killing. Well, and, and I think, too, the, you know, this, the whole issue of, of what's going on with this leap beam is there's at, Vix is seeing these premonitions that there's going to be a crash, that the whole system is going to crash and people who are traveling in are going to die. And so this is a way that the writers could show here's what would happen if that crash happened. If yeah. this system went down, these all these people would end up like him or they would die end being up like scattered him. into space. Yeah, I, I think end up like him is maybe what they were going for. I, I wasn't clear on. So would they all die or would they just all end up like Tom? I, I think it would be a combination of both, you know, yeah. depending on yeah. where they were in the system and all that. So. And the, the doctor has to spend time getting her to face this reality because she for one thing, she, she won't uh, admit that Tom did anything wrong. Right. Uh, that uh, um, that it's the system like Tom didn't make a mistake in in his operating the tra the leap beam. It was the system is broken. The, the leap system that claims to be 100 percent safe and effective. And she doesn't want to be the one to blow the whistle on this thing because she'll lose her job and lose her, you know, whatever. She's, af she's yeah. afraid. There's also a side plot, which we haven't mentioned, which is the reason that um, that Tom was, well, we did mention he, the reason he was using the leap beam in an unauthorized way was to get back and visit his daughter. Mm -hmm. But the there's a side plot about why Vix doesn't want to reveal what's happened to Tom yet, because he's like six weeks away from the end of his term. And if at the end of his term, his family will receive, he'll get a payout, which mm -hmm. will go to his family. And so they'll be financially taken care of, but only if he completes his term. And since he's still alive and the, the ship's automated system is registering the two people it expects, it expects to see Vix and Tom, it will, uh, it, it will, it, it will recognize him as having finished his term in six weeks time. And then 
she can come forward about all this and make sure the money gets to Tom's family. And she just has to cover for him for another Mm -hmm. six weeks by doing his job as well as hers. And so she's trying to do this to help Tom's family. And but the doctor is trying to get her to face your visions are getting more intense. You know, you're taking that psychic suppressant blue phosphor stuff. How often every day now? And she's like every hour. And um, so that suggests that the the system wide crash is coming very soon. You can't afford to wait six weeks, even though you want to help Tom. And so her choice is, you know, save Tom's family. Or save millions of people. She's faced with this because when she decides to blow the whistle, which that's the resolution, she she's really kind of left Tom's family out. Like she's she, the bad mm-hmm. thing that Tom's family like t- Tom and his family have a bad end in this story. <laughs> yeah. What would they they don't. Well, OK, so it for a while, it looks like they're going to do something else. Uh, because at some point the system does its routine scan to see how many people are on the station and it detects the doctor Mm -hmm. and it says there's three people on the station and that's when Tom leaps off. And so the doctor is talking to the system. It's like just two people now, exactly what you expect, right? Because Mm -hmm. the system had gone crazy thinking they were being invaded and put in all these lockdown protocols. Um, And I thought they were going to have the doctor say, I'll hang out here for six weeks with you. You know, um, but they didn't. They had him leave quick, quicker than that off screen. I mean, if I were a lawyer, um, after all this becomes public, there would be if I were a lawyer in Vix's time, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there would be a way to handle this anyway. It's like, okay, your system whose flaws she just exposed made this guy go crazy and kill himself. They Mm. deserve compensation. Hmm. If I were mm-hmm. the company's lawyers, I'd say that's because he used it in an unauthorized fashion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but it still revealed also, the safety. It revealed the safety flaws of the system. Right. Yeah, that, that sounds. Payer. That sounds like sounds like one of those late night commercials for a lawyer. Have you or a loved <laughs> one worked on the beam platform and went crazy because of being bounced through the beam? You might be eligible for compensation. You better call Saul in the thirtieth century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and that's the thing. So as the system is about to go down, Vix sends this transmission to every node, tell him to shut it. She she does the whistleblower thing, and you know the and presumably everything gets shut down and leap beam gets exposed for you know the whatever. Um, and the as you mentioned, Father Corey, the the end the end moral of this is corporations bad, workers united, good. Um, mm-hmm. Which is oh, a, that happens all the time on Doctor Who, though. You kind of got to Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> and that, that's where I kind of said that this is, you know, yet another one of these stories. Another evil megacorp versus, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the, the plucky uh, workers who are standing mm-hmm. up for their rights. One one thing that surprised me though is that that the Doctor didn't rescue Vix. You know, he he went somewhere else to do whatever he was doing somewhere else, and he didn't take her with him. So she's stuck on this station with the with the beams down so she can't get off. That's a good point. (laughs) She's stuck in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but she (laughs) needs to be there to coordinate this workers rebellion. And so once the system is proved safe or whatever, they'll or safe enough, they'll they could bring it up 
online enough to evacuate the workers on the stations and things like that. But he needed someone to stay in this situation yep. to coordinate the workers right. and make sure they take matters into their own hands instead of just leaving it to the corporation. Yeah. You know, speaking of corporations, I'm trying to think I'd have to go back and review the first doctor's uh, serials, but at, I can think of the evil faceless, soulless corporation trope being in Doctor Who as early as the second Doctor's time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the original TMAT corporation is there. Mm-hmm. And so I know it goes back at least that far. We also have others that are kind of like that, like in the uh, Terror from the Sea, you know, which we did recently. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, even though they're not the seaweed is the monster, but the corporation's activities are what you right. know a contributing factor here. The corporation is still evil, um, right. and I wonder if it goes all the way back to the first Doctor. But I'd have to check. It's not since we had so many historicals there that took up a bunch of the time, and we didn't have as many corporate centered episodes. I, one that kind of is like that is is um, the War Machines, mm-hmm. where you have which we haven't done yet, where you have um, a, 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 a you have people building these war machines, these basically war drones, you know, robots mm-hmm. to fight wars, and an AI kind of gets out of hand. So we've got an early, <laughs> you know. Um, Terminator. <laughs> Terminator. I was trying to think of the name of the corporation from that. Starlink or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Skynet. 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 Starlink. Yeah, completely the same. <laughs> Dr. Freud, let me help you up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the, and there was always, in the, especially in Classic Who, there was always that slightly uh, crossover with scientists out of control. You know, mm-hmm. science out of control, often with big business you know, uh, uh, overtones on that, but so they, they they often had those kind of mixing together. Yeah, at least early on, the the scientist one was was more prevalent than the mm-hmm. corporation one. So, anything uh, else you want to say about this episode, Father Corey? Eh, nothing here. How about you, Jimmy? Nope. All right, so let's move on to our listener feedback, and our feedback comes from our recent episode, Stones of Blood, which was a fourth Doctor story, and Mark Gillies wrote in on our YouTube channel. Admittedly, I haven't seen this episode in years, but this was one of the ones that made me love Doctor Who. The local channel started airing Doctor Who with the Key to Time series. This was the series that hooked me. I loved the humor, and the horror worked great for an 11-year-old. I had no trouble with the Stones being the villain, Maybe this is a case of adults looking at a villain from our perspective and not a child's, or maybe I was just scared easily. As you discussed the episode, I uh, as as you discussed the episode, I had amazing nostalgia for these episodes and remembered watching them for the first time late Saturday nights in the early '80s. Everyone has their doctor, and mine was Tom Baker. Thanks for the podcast, guys, and keep up the good work. My yeah. first. My first doctor was Tom Baker, but I my local uh, PBS station started with in the mid 70s with Robot, the very first Tom Baker Mm. story. So I actually got a glimpse of the third doctor um, Mm. as he was regenerating into the fourth. But uh, I know the I I I I loved the Tom Baker serials um, and and I love other doctor serials, but um but yeah, nostalgia for these things is a real factor. Yeah, <laughs> this is- yeah. I, I want to say 
Tom Baker was my was probably my first, only by just the number chance, be, the, the chance that because Tom Baker had the most serials of any of the mm-hmm. classic doctors mm-hmm. individually. So you know the odds are pretty good that he was. I don't, but I don't remember you know like what the first story was I saw or anything like that. But obviously, I remember watching him as a as a kid. I don't know the history or for sure, but I, I'm on a bet that for a lot of American Doctor Who fans, that, you know that. For American Doctor Who uh, being yeah. shown in America on TV, it was Tom Baker that was the start mm-hmm. of it. it. It was there were there that was really when the BBC started selling um, Doctor Who to America. It was with mm-hmm. the Tom Baker era. Interesting. They then, they tried yeah, to they started right from the, they tried to sell it in America right from the beginning, yeah, right from the start. But it you know it took off better in more of the British Commonwealth countries than it did here. Right. Right. And you know, and then you get seven seasons of Tom Baker. It's no wonder for so, for so many people, Tom Baker was the Doctor. Just you know, uh, mm-hmm. that there was you know for so many Americans anyway. So, uh, yep. Thank you, Mark, for your feedback. Greatly appreciate it. So that's it for us this time. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Gabe S, James S, Joel L, Pascal H, and Marguerite K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Simon Yannick, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. We'd love to know what you thought of below there, this Ninth Doctor Big Finish story. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or The Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And you can watch The Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the third Doctor story, Carnival of Monsters. Ooh, cool. Nice. Trapped in a miniscope. (laughs) And Droshigs. (laughs) <laughs> Until then, Father Cory Stiga, thank you for joining uh, me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, I spy with my little eye something that begins with S.